0: Welcome. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and with me today in studio is David Donaldson, who is the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome, David.
1: Hi, Susan. Very glad to be here.
0: Very glad to have you, because I think this is an interesting topic. We're going to talk about the brain, how we need the whole brain, and we need to heal the whole brain in order to really get into solid recovery from addiction and from other problems that we might have in terms of co-occurring problems like depression or anxiety. We have to heal the entire brain. But I think it's also interesting that probably most of us go through most days and don't think at all about our brain. We might remember that we've got a sore back or that our foot hurts or that our sinuses are all plugged up with all of this pollen that we've got going on here in Atlanta. Uh, But most people, unless they have a headache, which technically isn't their brain either, I've got to point out, um, they don't really think about their brain and all of the things that the brain does and how very fragile and very important it is to us.
1: Yeah, I th- I think that's absolutely true and and they tend to not when they do think about their brain, they really subdivide it. Yes. They think okay, well, it's it's um my thinking brain, I need to be thinking this more clearly, I need to not be so emotional and, th- and there's really kind of an assault on the emotional brain which mm-hmm. is what I think is so important about about what we're going to talk about today because I think the recovery process has to allow for healing of the whole brain and, and that means we have to recognize that our emotions are, are hugely important.
0: They really are and they are so much more a part of our everyday thinking and problem solving, decision making, we usually tend to assume that when we're making a difficult choice or when we're trying to analyze a situation or decide what we're going to do, that we are using the part of our brain that is reason and logic and good sense and wisdom and all those wonderful things that we've crammed into our brain over the years. And we totally discount or minimize the idea of emotions and intuition, the The soft, the softer side of the brain. Now, let's face it, the brain is very soft anyway, all over. But we tend to think and discount, as you say, the feeling part of our brain, the emotional part of our brain, and yet it has such a big impact. And the more we separate our self from it or try and avoid it, the more trouble we're likely to get into in our lives and the more likely we are really to make poor decisions and poor choices. So we have to give some Credence and some um, um, information. <laughs> I've lost my word. We have to. We have to acknowledge the importance of the emotional part of our brain and the role that it does play in recovery. Because, as you said, that often gets discounted, and people don't really accept that.
1: It even it even becomes something that's used to divide people. Um, it'll divide the sexes. Yes, um, if, all the time. <laughs> if a, a woman is being really emotional, it will become the, the the argument stopper. We would be able to talk about this if you wouldn't get so emotional. Um, um, it will divide the the person, the adult, from the child. If you get emotional, then you're being childish or you're being too um, immature. Um, and and with this message, that maturing means you turn off your emotions and you start using your thinking brain and your rational brain, and, mm-hmm. and you put away childish things, as as some sex would say. <laughs> right. And in reality, we we have three sections of our brain that are crucial for our survival, and and we've got to give them the the um, information that's necessary that so that each of them is able to thrive, so that we can thrive as a whole person.
0: And we have to work hard at integrating all of these parts of our brain in order to be most healthy, most efficient, most effective, and to really enjoy our life. So, you're right. We have three parts of our brain. Uh, We can divide our brain in several ways. We can divide it right and left, and we can separate the scientist from the artist. Um, We can divide it um, front to back. We can talk about... The visual part of our brain versus the um, the thinking, logical part of our brain. But really, I think for our discussion today, the three parts of the brain are the ones that we really need to look at. From a um, a animalistic viewpoint, our oldest part of our brain. The part of our brain that is common to all animals that move under their own power. So I'm excluding some viruses, amoebas, and other kinds of living organisms. And we're going to talk about, um, invertebrates and vertebrates. These, these animals, like ourselves, all have one part of our brain. This is the reptilian brain, the old, old part of our brain that is really responsible for the life-sustaining part of our existence. We don't have to sit up all night and remind ourselves to breathe. Fortunately, this part of our brain makes sure that we continue to breathe. I don't have to tell my heart to keep beating. I can't really even tell my stomach how to digest the snack I just ate. It I don't have that capacity. In fact, the important thing to to remember is that most of our activities that happen within our body and brain are not under our conscious control and often not even under our conscious awareness. It's very interesting.
1: And so in the addiction world, that part of the brain is often talked about as being hijacked. Right. That the amount of dopamine that's released from drugs of, of abuse, from alcohol, from cocaine, from crystal meth, specifically take over that part of the brain and change the person's um, survival definition to, mm-hmm. if you want to survive, you have to do cocaine. And, and that part of the brain fully believes that. Right. Um, <clears throat> as you were talking, I was thinking about how, how twice a day I take my dogs for a walk for walks, and, and um, we'll be going down the sidewalk, and everything will be flowing nice and smooth, and we'll just be making a lot of progress, and just just the on, on a second, Lucky, one of the dogs will smell something, and he'll stop, and he'll turn around, and this dog doesn't weigh 12 pounds, <laughs> right. but he has the force to stop all forward momentum and pull you off balance to go back and see whatever it is that just caught his nose, that something hit his nose so powerful, and it's usually not... Anything that we would even see, right. it's usually, or definitely <laughs> or not something we'd be in. wanting to talk about. <laughs> but the power of of the of the sensation of smell being being hitting his nose and going into his brain and making him instantly stop and turn all of us around. So you can check that out. Just kind of speaks to how powerful this part of the brain is. It. it it is hijacked and it's talked about that way because that is a part of it it really does have a lot of control over our lives
0: and you're right the survival part of our brain that's job is to do all of the things that and encourage us to do all of the things that we need to do to take care of ourselves and to survive and to continue the species so sex drive and reproduction is also controlled by this part of our brain, really important. But the sense of smell, you've brought up a really important thing, and Lucky's a very good example of that. The sense of smell is one of our most powerful triggers of memory and one of our most powerful initiators of behavior. Our olfactory lobe is a little part of our brain that actually comes out from our skull and is outside of our skull in our nose. And we smell things. Now, we don't smell like lucky smells. We don't have that ability. But what we can do is be very triggered by or reminded of things by having a smell. If I smell cinnamon, I immediately think of my mother and my grandmother making cinnamon rolls. They made fabulous cinnamon rolls. And in a second, I'm transported back to the kitchen and the smell of them making cinnamon rolls. Now, I wasn't thinking of them. I wasn't thinking of cinnamon rolls. I wasn't hungry. It wasn't Christmas time. None of those things were part of my awareness or part of... Of what I was doing. But that smell of cinnamon transports me back in time and is a very powerful reminder. If we think about when people are using drugs or alcohol, I don't care what drug it is. I don't care what behavior it is. There is a smell associated with it. And this smell is one of the most powerful initiators of that part of my brain suddenly releasing a little bit of dopamine and wanting a whole lot more of this pleasure-reward chemical. So just like my smelling cinnamon makes me want a cinnamon roll and think of my grandmother and my mother, the smell, whatever it is, whether it's the smell of alcohol, the smell of meth, somebody smoking meth, the smell of pot... And All of these things have a smell associated with them. Even if it's opening a prescription bottle of pills, there is a smell associated with that. And these are some of the ways in which that primitive part of our brain suddenly, just like Lucky, getting hijacked by whatever scent he passed by on your walk stops everything. Stops the forward motion, changes the direction.
1: And part of what's so interesting about that is that everybody's reaction to that sense of smell is is going to be different when right. you when you mention that the smell of marijuana most people that are adults in our country have smelled the smell of marijuana right. and and When you are walking down the street, if that smell hits you, several people's reaction is going to be a a fond memory. It's going to take them back to a time when they felt this buzz and it made them feel really happy. And there are going to be a large portion of people who are going to be have a repulsion reaction to it and they're like oh my gosh the smell of marijuana gets the smell you just can't get it out of your nose and then there's going to be a certain population that are going to start drooling and start looking around and they're going to start seeing if they can zero in on just where that spot is that the marijuana is going because (coughs) the smell is hitting each person differently
0: right but very powerfully and all of them are walking down the street having a discussion or thinking about something that probably did not include marijuana until that second when they had that smell, and then there is a memory, a thought, and in the case of some of our patients that uh, marijuana is their drug of choice or one of their favorite drugs, they will suddenly have this overpowering urge or thought, obsessive thought about using and going and finding marijuana and it will stop you dead in your tracks.
1: And even though there are a lot of people who like to pretend marijuana is not a gateway drug, right? <coughs> for those people who marijuana was the initiator into other things, it will let it will it will send their brain thinking about I wonder what else is around here.
0: Exactly. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other levels and other layers of the brain and how this all comes together to help people recover from the disease of addiction. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to
2: cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just
0: for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. With me is David Donaldson, the CEO and Clinical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about in order to recover, we have to heal the whole brain, and we have to involve the whole brain. I think this is a great topic because it's one that sometimes gets overlooked or that In the course of talking about addiction, we focus so much on the pleasure center, the dopamine reward center of the brain, we miss the importance of the other layers of the brain, especially in the recovery part.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and there's so much focus um, on, as you were saying, the the pleasure pain center and and the... (coughs) Um, helping not overreact to that or learning to reduce the cues associated to that that the other two sections of the brain um, um, really do get neglected or minimized.
0: Right, but they are very important. So before we leave this primitive brain, I did want to point out Besides the addiction center, there are two important structures that have to be involved in the recovery process. One is a little almond-shaped part of the brain. We have one on each side. It's called the amygdala. And this part of our brain is our burglar alarm system. It's supposed to go off and send out adrenaline so that we can run and hide and, or stay and fight if we're in a dangerous situation. It's our warning center. It also houses our emotional memory. The hippocampus, these are seahorse-shaped organs. We have one on each side of our brain, and it's in this primitive survival part of the brain. And this is the storage of our memories, our instinctual memories that we are born with. Now, for a lot of animals, those instinctual memories about the salmon that swim up, leave the ocean, swim up the Columbia River, end up in the Salmon River in Idaho and spawn, how they find their way there thousands of miles away is part of that instinctual memory. It's something that is passed on from generation to generation. As humans, we don't have much in terms of instinctual memory. In fact, there's really only two things that we're afraid of at birth. Every other fear that we have is a learned fear. But at birth, we are afraid of two things. We're afraid of loud noises, and we're afraid of the sense of falling. So one of the things that you do when a new baby's born, and this sounds kind of mean, but it's not, and nobody gets hurt, but you take the new baby into the nursery to do a neurological exam, and a, a physical exam on the baby to make sure that it is healthy. One of the things that you do is you put your hands above the baby's head and then you clap really loud and hard. And what the baby does is this startle response. Their arms and legs fly clear out and their hands are shaking and their eyes dilate open really wide and, you know, they're having quite a reaction. You let them calm down from that. Maybe you listen to their heart or lungs or you count their fingers or toes. And then you pick them up and you have one hand under their head and one hand under their bottom, and you just hold them there, and then you drop your hands really fast. You don't drop the baby, the baby comes with your hands, but you move down suddenly, and the baby does that same startle response. That's normal, but those are the real, really, the instinctual things that we know. We know how to nurse, we, we can figure that out, but most everything else we have to learn as we go along. So that part of instinctual memory isn't very much, but most of our hippocampus is stored with all of the things that we've learned throughout our lives. From the time we are little children, what we learn in school, what we learn on the playground, what we learn from our experiences are stored there. How we feel about what we've learned is stored in the amygdala. And these two organs uh, systems are really important in our survival, of course. But they're really important, too. And this is some of the things when you talk about the feeling part of the memory or the feeling part of the brain that we have to work on in recovery. These two (laughs) organs are really, really important.
1: We spend a lot of time really looking at the... the Intensity of the drive that happens when those emotional me- memories are triggered. Yes, the ones that that when somebody does their drug of choice, um, whether it's alcohol or or opiates or cocaine, when they do their drug of choice, their brain has such a positive, wonderful reaction to it that it stores in its emotional memories <clears throat> everything it needs to be able to repeat that incident. So. The smell that we talked about earlier of marijuana, the sight of what people look like who might be dealers of it the um the hairstyle and the clothes and the mm-hmm. coloration their brain stores all of that so that if there's an opportunity when they're walking down the street of of scoring some more of their drug of choice, their brain's not going to miss that, and it gets stored that clear that that firmly um, so we really spend a lot of time looking at at <clears throat> not only not. Triggering those, but but helping to replace those with new emotional memories, or, or, or sometimes we refer to it as muscle memory. Right. You know, using a tennis analogy of, of getting that swing down, and you do the same swing a, a hundred times, so that you finally don't have to think about where to put your racket before the ball gets there. Putting some muscle memory into um, into protecting your life and your recovery, rather than into finding the addiction.
0: So, th- again, survival part of our brain, unconscious, we don't have control over this part of our brain.
1: The um, Before we leave it, though, also the, the amygdala, um, because it's, you know, it's the alarm clock, as you were talking about, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe? Um boom there's such a connection between the emotions that we're going to talk about in, in a minute and the the am i safe am i safe am i safe mm-hmm. um part of what we really look at with 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 our clients is recognizing when um, um an emotion or a feeling is escalating to a point that it's going to trigger that amygdala am i safe am i safe you know somebody can feel irritated and maybe annoyed with somebody, and their amygdala is fine. And they might get a little bit more aggravated when they're starting to feel like this, like whatever is becoming more threatening, and their amygdala is going to start going off. And and so what we t- tend to realize is that when somebody's dealing with emotions at a level higher than about a five, their their amygdala is getting ready to kick in And do whatever it needs to do to be safe. And in the case of addiction, that's use drugs. Right.
0: That's the use drugs.
1: So this is the the amygdala and the emotional brain are directly connected. And we have to help people see that you can't just focus on healing one part of the brain. We've got to heal them both because they will sabotage each other if we don't.
0: What's really interesting when we do our brain mapping. And for those of you who are not familiar with a quantitative EEG, this is one of the things that is a very useful tool for us, uh, and we use this at the Atlanta Healing Center on almost all of our patients. So we take an EEG, an electroencephalogram, recording of the person's brain activity. And we take this data and we compare it against some normative databases. We look at age-matched norms. Yes, women's brains and men's brains do operate differently. Um, And we know that we don't get a fully adult brain if we're a woman until we're 25 or 26, if we're a man until we're 26 or 27. So we have to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples. Uh, So we look at age-match norms. The next thing we look at and review are known patterns of psychiatric disorders, things like depression or anxiety, attention deficit disorder, those kinds of things. But one of the things that is very interesting when we look at the amygdala of many of our patients with the disease of addiction Rather than seeing an organ that is hyperactive, like we do with someone who has a genetically inherited anxiety disorder, where that burglar alarm system is going off all the time and sending out adrenaline all the time, and the person's having panic attacks or social anxiety or obsessive-compulsive disorder, many of our patients who have the disease of addiction actually have an underactive amygdala. This part of the brain is not as responsive to danger as uh, as a non-addicted brain. I'm not going to say normal because nobody's normal, but a non-addicted brain. So what that means is that often for these folks, they might have anxiety about a lot of things, some of which they need to be anxious about, but situations... People, places, and things that we often use those words in in recovery talk. People, places, and things that are dangerous, their brain isn't giving them that message. They are not scared in situations where they should be frightened. Their burglar alarm system isn't giving them the message that this is a dangerous place to be. You might want to rethink this decision. You might not want to go hang out with this person. They're not getting that message. And so they're going to be not scared to drive to a bad part of town in their nice car with cash money in their pocket and interact with dangerous people. Most of us that don't have addiction might be frightened about that, think this is really not a good idea, this is a scary part of town, doesn't even occur to them. They're not a, They're not afraid. They're actually fearless. Now, if we can contain the disease of addiction, if we can contain the lethality of the drug and alcohol use, this is actually one of the advantages of the disease of addiction. Because Again, if you can get the drugs and alcohol and behaviors under control that are life-threatening to them. These folks are often very um, fearless. They make good entrepreneurs. They are willing to take some risks. They're willing to be an astronaut or an explorer or a military leader or an athlete. They're willing to do what they need to do and go further than many people would in accomplishing their goals. So the disease of addiction isn't all bad, and it's not all bad not to have a caution bump, as my grandmother would say, but in in many cases, our, our people are not getting the message, so they're really not aware of the fact that this is a dangerous thing that they're about to do.
1: This is part of what really really confuses family members. And we try we try to help family members recognize that their loved one with addiction's brain is responding to life differently. Um because they do have a caution bump pop up there at the strangest times. Right. <laughs> it, it'll pop up there if there's going to be a, a weekend where we're all going to get in the car and go over and visit the cousins and visit grandmother. Because then it's going to pop up with these huge, overwhelming fears of, what am I going to say to these people? How am I going to talk to these people? Are they going to judge me? And and those fears will become paralyzing for this person who's right. totally, totally completely comfortable walking into a, um, a crack den And pulling out his wallet and pulling out money and buying cocaine from somebody he's never met before, no fear going off then, but to go see grandmother and wonder what she's going to say will absolutely be paralyzing. And and family members won't get that. Right. Because who would? That that makes no sense.
0: Right. And that is one of the very unusual things about the disease of addiction and the way in which the brain is wired differently. It is. It's a genetically inherited problem that they were often born with. We often see the antecedents of Addiction. well before someone picks up drugs or behavior. A lot of times these kids are going to be the kids that take the dare, that want to bungee jump off the house to see if they can, that want to ride their bikes really fast, that want to do these kinds of high-adrenaline activities that other people are standing back, oh, well, n- no, but... For them it's it's fun. It, they they really enjoy that. So their brains are wired differently and it is very difficult to understand that. And this is impacting their conscious behavior. That is one of the classic things that we have to understand. Though we think our conscious behavior is reasonable and logical and full of well-calculated decisions, it is not. Our worldview and the way this survival part of our brain is wired is going to be constantly influencing us, even though it's not conscious. It is going to impact how we see the world, how we interact with each other, how we make our decisions. That's... Thinking, reasonable, rational part of our brain that we're going to talk about in a minute really is not nearly as omnipresent and as um, completely in control as we would like to believe it is. It just isn't.
1: And again, what's so confusing for family members is because that rational, reasonable part of the brain once it's been taken over by that, that risk taking, I'm gonna do whatever part of the brain, it can communicate like this totally makes sense. It can tell the mm-hmm. story of why, um, <clears throat> I would get in my car and go 100 miles per hour down to this part of town where, um, I'm going to be, stand out like a complete target, why logically it completely makes sense to the point that, that people will question themselves for even questioning the situation because that whole brain is working together and so the logic is saying of course this is what what i don't know why everybody doesn't do this
0: duh duh is a word that often comes out as we're having these conversations we're going to take a break now and when we come back we'll talk about the other layers of the brain and their role in recovery thanks for listening
2: perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction if not So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com
2: This is America's Webradio.com, The best in chat radio designed
0: just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and in studio with me is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about we need the whole brain. We need the whole brain to be well and happy in order for a person to get into recovery. So that means we need to work with the thinking part of the brain and also the feeling part of the brain. We've talked about the deep structure, the reptilian brain, the lizard brain, many different words for it, but um, this part of the brain that is responsible for survival, that is responsible for our non-verbal um, kinds of survival things like breathing and digesting our food and our blood pumping and all of these kinds of activities that go on a lot of things are happening in our body all the time that is controlled by our brain but for which we have little to know appreciation, certainly, and often little to no awareness that it's going on. This part of the brain is awake and alert all day and all night. And this is where the disease of addiction lies. This is the part of the brain that gets hijacked when someone is active in the disease. This part of the brain gets taken over, and the person, as you said earlier, David, is really... Now convinced that this drug or behavior is essential to their survival, and nothing else really matters, this this whole process is very powerful. And undoing that is um, is quite a um, feat sometimes.
1: So the the next part of the brain that we're moving into is the the emotional center of the brain, right the um, I'm I'm just not really good with the uh, the huge <laughs> scientific words. We'll call it the
0: paleomammalian brain. The
1: paleo mammalian brain. <laughs> I'm I'm very good after I've heard it, but once I when I see it the letters just all have a dyslexic moment. But anyway, the the emotional part of the brain, the way it's taken over by addiction is that it's it uh, in a couple of ways one the addict learns really quickly that no matter what the emotional state is it can be changed in an instant with mm-hmm. its drug of choice so if i'm feeling da- down and sad and i want to feel happy i just have to pop this pill and i will be up and i'll be feeling wonderful um if i'm feeling bored and i'm and i just don't know what i want to do with my life i can just take this little sip of something and then i'm no longer bored and so the brain is learning that emotions can be changed immediately and you don't have to do any real work to process Mm -hmm. through the feelings or to think about the feelings and to feel the feelings and understand them you can just change them that feelings just change because i've decided i'm i don't want to feel this way so i'm going to distract myself from it with either a behavior or a chemical. And so the feelings um, the, the feelings are, are taken over in that way. The other way that, that emotions and feelings are taken over, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> so the first way is by the, the idea that I can just change them instantaneously. The second way is as a defense system. Mm-hmm. So when the addict feels like you might be getting in the way of their using, when they think that you might be, in, in the case of marijuana, wanting to take their marijuana away and wanting them to give up all of the joy and the beauty that comes from having marijuana in your system and make them have to live in just this gray, boring life, their emotions will instantly come out either as rage right. and it will will use anger not so much as a feeling, but as a wall to push you back, mm-hmm. um, or sadness and start crying and be really, really sad because nobody understands. And, and so the emotional brain becomes more of a manipulative brain and it becomes something that patients begin using in their addiction rather than, rather than in living a healthy, happy life, it becomes their barrier to protect their chemicals from the other person. So, part of the process in the healing is one getting the patients to realize there's a difference between emotions that are a defense system and emotions that are indicating how you're how you intrinsically are doing. Um, and the other part is then getting them comfortable with being able to communicate about feelings on that level. Um, that's a, a much more vulnerable level. That's a level that that causes them to not really know where this conversation's going to go or mm-hmm. how the other person's going to react. So it causes them to feel feelings of anxiety and their amygdala starts going off in the wrong time and and so that becomes a real threatening experience of feelings whereas the the other experience of feelings where it's more of a wall or manipulation is is much more familiar.
0: Right. And that using their feelings in a way to manipulate others is also based on the fact that as they Um, perfect this defense mechanism, they learn to read the other person so they know that their boss will respond better if they get angry and hold up a no, no, no um, versus the boss that's going to give in if they collapse into tears or um, have some pouty experience. So they, they learn to anticipate what the their barrier, whether that's their mother or their spouse or their boss or their best friend or whoever it is, they learn how to use that emotion. And it becomes almost automatic for them. It's not something that they're necessarily consciously sitting back going, hmm, now is this person going to respond? They just instinctively begin to know how to do that and how to use that emotion they really don't want to be, to acknowledge how manipulative <laughs> that is and it's a very hard response um to get out of that takes a lot of effort on their part and acknowledgement that this is this is not real emotion this is acting apart
1: yeah that's a a, a, a good way to look at it that this is a role that that they've taken on to help feed their need mm-hmm. um, one of the ones that that we regularly will see is where they just have a, a nice smile and they agree mm-hmm. and they say yes of course you're so helpful and you're so wise um, and not that we aren't helpful and wise at the Atlanta because healing of course center we but, are. <laughs> but when we're hearing it in this sense it's probably one that we have to stop and, and look at first um, and we used to actually, and we still do actually, address helping the patients to be able to see these mm-hmm. um, these characters um, by going ahead and labeling them: this, the people pleasers, and the intimidators, and the um, the self pity, um, poor poor pitiful people. You know, and just. Going ahead and putting those kind of labels onto the emotions that they're using, um, it's kind of a fine line between name calling and being abusive, and helping them (laughs) see this is this is a feeling that's being used as a defense. But it, it at least makes it really visual for them. So if you're if you're doing some board exercise on the wall or whiteboard exercise where you're looking at what are the different feeling defenses that you hid behind or that your addiction hid mm-hmm. behind, um, they, they may be able to see it, to be able to see, oh, I was a people pleaser or I was a yes man or I was an um, intimidator.
0: And that's really important because those emotions seem so much more real to them and to the people around them. So in order to get to the how they really feel, those real emotions that they're experiencing that are probably uncomfortable for them... You have to break down that defense wall, and you have to help them see the difference and then be able to sit with those uncomfortable feelings and not have their automatic thought of, I need to use something because I'm uncomfortable, I'm anxious, I'm bored, I'm frightened, I'm sad, I'm lonely. I want to celebrate more. All of those feelings... Their real feelings, their real emotions are very difficult for them to tolerate. They can have a big old snit fit and be just fine with it, but to sit with sadness and to feel those emotions and not have the powerful drive to medicate those emotions is a real important part of the recovery process. The other thing we need to look at in this process is because this part of our brain is our emotional brain, this part of our brain may also be the part of our brain that might have another psychiatric disorder. They may really have a a medical uh, problem with depression or anxiety, and we have to look at that in this part of the brain as well. Please stay tuned. We're going to talk about these emotions and recovery. Thanks for listening.
3: All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
1: Perhaps
2: you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank and with me today is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about how to heal in recovery and the fact that we need all parts of our brain. We need our thinking, reasonable, logical part of the brain and we also need our emotional part of the brain to be part of our healing process. Now, you may have noticed that we've spent three-quarters Of the time talking about the emotional part of our brain, the thinking. Part of our brain, not so much. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But one last little thought about the paleomammalian brain, and that is the limbic system. That is our emotional part of our brain that we get when we get to be mammals. The reptilian brain, everybody, lizards on up through humans have it. The paleomammalian brain, that's for everything that is a mammal. Um, part of the the need for this emotional brain, this bonding brain, this brain that can have social interaction and have a sense of community and working together, this part of our brain. When you're a mammal, you do take care of your young. It is important to be part of a community. And so the emotional attachments, the interactions that become really important to animals as well as humans, this part of our brain is um, is what 's responsible for that. This part of our brain can be manipulative and defense uh, a defensive mechanism as we 've talked about it, but one of the things that we have to always remember and part of our continual assessment of the patient is whether or not there may in fact be a problem in their limbic system. They may have a genetically inherited anxiety disorder. They may have bipolar disorder. They may have a problem with a depressive disorder. And we have to be watching for that because if we don't intervene either with neurofeedback some lifestyle changes and or maybe medications this person's going to be really vulnerable to relapse because the limbic system we can't control either. It is not nec- we are aware of it but we don't have conscious control over it. We can't decide who we're going to love. We can't decide who we're going to be afraid of necessarily. Those things are unconscious responses based on the situation and our knowledge and interaction with the person so we have to stabilize that part of the brain and we have to engage that part of the brain in moving towards a more healthy lifestyle
1: um the only thing i would add on to this portion of that is that that it is so imperative that you take the time to have a good diagnosis in this area um for for the reason that you mentioned that, that you may have an underlying depression or bipolar disorder or the other, the opposite of that we <laughs> often see real often is that, that people are given the diagnosis of bipolar disorder or ADD or depression when it's a, when it's an addiction issue and that, that really people need to have some abstinence and some time away from it to know whether the addiction, whether the, the other diagnoses are true. Um, and And so that's just not something that can be done in isolation you've got to have people in your life. The other part that came to me as we were talking about that is real often um, people talk about emotions in terms of that primary emotions anger um, fear and and happiness you know the ones that keep us alive and surviving. But I often really spend a lot of time talking to patients about our social emotions, which would be guilt and shame. Right. And we have those emotions to let us know when we are doing something that is separating us from our support system and from our fellow man and from what's important that what gives – gives our lives meaning and adds color into our lives. And when we just drink those emotions away or when we start doing mm-hmm. some behavior that just pushes those emotions down, from the outside it looks like you're a sociopath because you're separating yourself from society. But also it's it's um really keeping you it's setting setting up relapse, it's setting up all mm-hmm. of these other problems because you're you're discounting incredibly important information for your life.
0: Right. And unfortunately, you're now engaging in the behaviors that are going to get you voted off the island, so to speak. And that's part of this disease. Rather than reaching out, asking for help, talking about your pain, your suffering, your loneliness, you use um, drugs, alcohol, or behavior that then separates you even more from your opportunity to get that nurturing um, kindness um, acknowledgement that that we all need as humans this part of our brain makes us need that social and physical even interaction with other people and addiction just creates such a, a gulf and and the further you are in the addiction, the further away you are from those people who really love and care for you. And it's this terrible kind of paradox that happens that you need them even more, but you've driven them further away.
1: And it's crucial for the person in recovery to be able to learn to ask for help and to be able to learn to ask for what their needs are and and feel that feeling of vulnerability in doing so. As well as for family members to learn the feeling of being able to say no and be okay with it. Those those feelings that come up mm-hmm. that, that feel like I'm not being a good person or I'm inadequate or I'm not good enough are going to continue to be medicated in some form or fashion if we don't figure out a way to get comfortable with them.
0: Absolutely. So the last part of our brain is, um, this, probably the smallest part of our brain. And this is our, um, the neocortex or the neomammalian brain, which is the new brain. This is the brain that you get when you're actually a human being. This is our conscious thought. This is our ability to, have plans and hopes and dreams, to learn things, to care about developing great cities or beautiful pieces of music or art, this part of our brain that is that is a gift that we have when we're humans that other animals do not have. Um, this is the brain that we're aware of. This is our personality. This is the part of our brain that we have some control over in terms of um, uh, being present and being conscious of it. This part of our brain, unfortunately, goes offline when we are under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Whether or not we have the disease of addiction, you can unhook this reasonable, rational, logical, good choice-making part of your brain just by being intoxicated when you are chronically using drugs, alcohol, or behaviors, this brain is not there to help you make wise decisions and delay gratification. So this is the brain that we need to bring back online so that we can teach the coping skills, that we can address the issues with and that we can help with beginning the healing process.
1: And this is the part of the brain that when you've been in chronic addiction and it gets turned off for a while... Doesn't turn right back on, right? Once you stop using, and and what's so important about this is that everybody on the outside expects that it does. If you if you have been clean from alcohol or drugs for for two weeks, or, or definitely if you've been clean for a month, you should be productive. You should be um, up and out of bed and doing a lot of things, and you should be apologizing for all the things you did wrong, and you should be working to pay all these things back. And what we know is that your brain is not anywhere close to being able to do those things. Um, I often think about when people were, in the old days, admitted to 28-day programs, or if they were fortunate and they they were in 90-day programs, that they had this time period where they didn't have to make any decisions. Right. They had staff members taking them by the hand and walking them to the cafeteria and walking them to the meetings. and
0: Helping them find (coughs) their room at the end of the day.
1: And giving them the boundaries for when they wake up and when they go to the restroom and when they go to bed and when they turn the lights off. And their brain really does need that. And just because nowadays people have to get sober real often in an outpatient setting doesn't make the brain heal any faster.
0: And this is a big problem, as you say, because on the outside, they're healthier. The person may have gained back the weight they've lost. They they have more energy. They may be sleeping better. They appear better. But when we look at their actual cognitive function, their ability to learn new things, to pay attention, to make decisions – it is still offline. It is offline for sometimes months for these folks. And though they may have a good vocabulary or social graces, and you miss the fact that cognitively they're pretty impaired. Um, It's a real important thing for both that person and their family to understand. This is not the time to make good decisions or make any decisions. This is the time to let your brain and body heal.
1: And when you think about offline, part of it is that they truly are not connected. So they can look at themselves in a mirror and not recognize them seeing themselves. It is that that disconnected. So the healing takes... uh, significant amount of time
0: it does and integrating the thinking <coughs> as well as the emotional part of the brain is crucial for anyone to really get solid into their recovery program thank you all for listening we will see you next week on detailing addiction
2: Boom. this is America's americaswebradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you